Welcome to On the Soul's Terms. I'm Chris Skidmore. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We have a special guest today. Her name is Zoe Tryon, and she's lived a fascinating life so far with much fascination and life to come, I'm sure. Uh, it was such a fun conversation that we had that we went a little bit over time. We ended up talking for pretty close to two hours, and as such, I've decided to split that into two more digestible chunks for you and uh, turn it into a part one, part two, which is what I always do on the show. We did that with Melanie Reinhardt and uh, with Stuart Gleden um, earlier in the year as well. Zoe truly is fascinating and has just a remarkable story. You're going to hear all about that in a minute, so I won't spoil it too much. But I just want to read to you something from... Zoe's website, just to give you a sense of, of who it is that we're talking to today and, and what she's up to in the world, which is um, she's up to quite a lot. <laughs> she's up to a lot of really amazing stuff. So I'm just going to read this to you from her page. I'll leave, I'll leave a link to this in the show notes as well if you'd like to find out more about her. She's quite active in, um, on social media and Instagram and, and leaves plenty of... Uh, Plenty of things to explore there. She's currently involved in a campaign um, to get one of the uh, indigenous elders in her in the tribe that she's engaged in in the Amazon into parliament, into into office, which she'll talk about more in part two of this episode. So, yeah, here's here's a few words about Zoe, and and uh, and then we'll go straight into our chat today. Zoe Tryon is a renowned activist, speaker, and artist known for her work with indigenous communities globally. She's the founder of One of the Tribe Journeys, a travel company that offers privately led immersive experiences with indigenous communities in the Ecuadorian Amazon and Andes. Through One of the Tribes, Zoe has led journalists, filmmakers, celebrities to witness places in the world few will ever see. Zoe also founded the One of the Tribe nonprofit to raise awareness for the issues facing Indigenous communities and has acted as a cultural liaison between Indigenous and Western leaders since 2006 when she first began living with the Achua tribe in the Amazon. Since then, Zoe has lived and worked with the Achua, Shua, Kichwa, Sapara, and Warani peoples across Ecuador. She has supported education, health, and economic capacity building projects, advocated for environmental and constitutional rights, and worked closely with Indigenous partners on the largest environmental lawsuit in history. Zoe speaks worldwide on the interconnected issues of environmental stewardship and corporate responsibility, and how we can apply extraordinary wisdom from tribal cultures to our lives today. She's an ambassador for Amazon Watch, a champion for the Clearwater Campaign, and a creative activist for the Creative Visions Foundation. Her artwork is held in private collections around the world. So there you go. And you can read more about Zoe on her website and uh, there's there's plenty more to discover about her there. Um, and some beautiful, beautiful pictures on there as well that I'd highly recommend. She is a, an artist, as mentioned here, and has some spectacular things to see you can also see pictures of the tribe pictures of her with the tribe so the end of the this episode um we we are talking about 
some magic at the end about a uh, an elder that that was able to through his dreaming see what kind of animals were on the completely other side of the world and at that point we'll we'll fade into the music and pick it up again in part two Welcome to On the Soul's Terms, a podcast exploring psychology, astrology, and mythology. Welcome, Zoe, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm super excited to be here with you. Same here. I'm so happy that you've agreed to come on. And um, yeah, I think just to start with, I like to do this with my guests sometimes of just um, just a land acknowledgement as a way to sort of anchor into where we are and, and to anchor into the land that we're at. And uh, that's kind of fun this time because for the first time, I think, on the podcast, maybe the second, we're at the same place. So where are we, Zoe? We're in Bali land. We're in Bali land. Yeah. Yes. The island is, of the gods. The island of the gods. What does it? Uh, what does it feel like to you? What does it mean to you to be in Bali? What does Bali mean to you personally? Well, I think for for me and for a lot of people, it's sort of it's a place of it's sort of it's interesting because it's a place of rest and uh, nourishment and sort of recuperation, but it's also a place of sort of birth and creativity as well. So it's sort of those. Two bits. Of, I guess you have to do the the rest and nourishment in order to have that space to mm. do the creativity. That's what. That's why I'm here. I'm really excited to. I've been here for two months now. And it's been wonderful and and it's very magical. Mm. You know, just having all that the tradition and all the rituals and the ceremonies and the constant reminder of the the connection with the divine everywhere is it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So there's a restfulness here, but also a creativity and. Most definitely that, that ceremony, that ritual, that connection that, yeah, it, you get a real sense here, unlike a lot of other places in the world right now, that, uh, that we're in a very living organism, that we are part of a very living organism and ourselves are part of that, um, or we are that. There's no real separation. You kind of get that sense of that here um, in, mm. the, in the underlying culture that's, that's the Balinese with all of their, their daily rituals and their, their monthly and their, their moon cycle stuff and all the, all the other cycles that they're working with all mm-hmm. the time here. It's, um, it's beautiful. And I, and I love also the, the fact that most of the houses here, there's no division between inside and outside. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so you've always got your, there's always ants coming in. There's always yeah. geckos everywhere. Yeah. There's, you know, I, we have birds flying in and out of the house. They sort of fly under the roof and have a check out of the bugs and insects. If I, we've got like beautiful frogs that that have their own territories in different areas of the bathroom, <laughs> the bedroom. Yeah. And every night we're like, oh, there you are, mate. You're on the, you're on the door handle tonight. And there's this constant sort of, maybe I'm a little, a little odd, but there's constant communication with nature, which mm. is really beautiful. You can't, you can't forget about nature here, I think, which is right. really wonderful. That's such a good point. I'm just thinking about my house here where I'm just staring out and there's just a big open section and, and that's all in nature. And then you walk inside and, and yeah, geckos on the, on the ceiling. And, and I love the little corners of the house that a frog might find and just hang out and find a spot. And just like, this is mine now. I've got this for a little while. Yeah. Such a good point. Amazing. 
Um, yes. So I really wanted you to get you on the podcast, Zoe. A friend, a mutual friend of ours, Bex, um, recommended us to meet. And so for the audience, uh, Zoe and I did meet and we went and had a tea down at a local Chinese tea house and um, pretty much didn't stop talking the whole time about all sorts of things, really. And I thought we'd bring that to the podcast. Um, but really the fascination is about your story and uh, your links to the Amazon and to the tribes there and to this to this sort of like, I, I, I feel only having met you a couple of times now, but I feel like you've, you've sort of in your life have rediscovered that ancient wisdom that's sort of coursing through. And um, it may not be a logical, linear, easy to speak about, easy to say in kind of logical, linear terms, but it's very palpable in my in in the connections and the conversations that I've had with you, although brief and only over the course of about a week or so. Um, so, yeah, I'd love for you to tell us about you know, your journey, a little bit about your journey and how you ended up in the Amazon of all places and and what life looks like for you there and here. <laughs> Big broad Thank question. You, Chris, I have. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, well, I guess it, it's quite, it, like you said, it's not, it's really not linear and it didn't make a lot of sense. And I think that um, as time has gone by, I have, you know, deeper, uh, faith and deeper surrender to you know the divine flow of things i think and and so uh like many of us it sort of push against the, the directions and the signs that have been pointing and then once we get that trust then it's like oh here we go mm-hmm. and you sort of get into that flow so you know i i grew up in a very different place in the amazon you know i grew up in um the british aristocracy in wiltshire in england and you know there weren't conversations around our dining table about social justice or environmental justice or that wasn't sort of what my family was interested in my that dad was a banker my mother was a fashion designer she, they were super social um but we did live in nature we lived in this beautiful estate in Wiltshire and from a very early age I mean, my father you know saw himself and that's I guess with the ancestral lineage of the aristocracy you see yourself as a custodian for the next generation you're the custodian of that land and you know our family was relatively nouveau. I think we've only been there two or 300 years, whereas many of the other families we hung out with had been in there on their land for seven or 800 years. So, really? wow. um, and so you have that really deep connection with that, um, with that area. And so, so I guess I picked up that from dad and nature was always my safe place, you know, and, um, and always, you know, I connected with animals and I, but from a very early age, I did feel sort of a little bit different and separate that a lot of us feel. And that's probably due to the fact that um, there was a lot of alcoholism and a bit of mental illness in my family. And mm-hmm. so, you know, on the exterior, there was a lot of, it all looked fine and shiny and privileged and glorious and, um, you know, the, the gilded cage sort of analogy. And then having to have that break within the soul, within mm-hmm. the, you know, the perception of what was going on in the reality, which was, you know, as many of your listeners will have experienced, most people had have had connection with those with mental illness or addiction. Um, you know, there's that feeling of confusion, terror, abandonment, loss a lot of the time. And I didn't really know how to process that or deal with that. But so for me, going into into the park, into the, in the we call it a park, it's like out of the front of the house, lots of really big old trees, you know, and going out there and climbing up and being, you know, in those beautiful 
branches of the trees that just would just hug your body perfectly. So we have to breathe. And, you know, even though I didn't know at the time, I was, I was being held by the earth, you know, and, and I just felt safe. And there was an old ice house in the woods as well, where um, in the olden days they'd cut ice in the, in the wintertime off the rivers, which used to freeze over in the olden days, and then they'd pack them with sawdust in these ice houses so you'd have ice in the summertime. And it's like this little old sort of made of uh, flintstones deep in the woods. And, you know, and I'd, I'd run away from home and go and sleep in my swag. You know what a swag is? Yeah, Australia. I know what a swag like a is, sleep, yeah. a, sleep, a sleeping bag inside a sort of uh, waterproof cover. Mm. So I'd run off in my swag and stay in the ice house. And so sort of it was definitely my sort of go-to place for sanctuary always. And um, But I didn't know people who were activists. I didn't know people who... Um, you know, who are environmentalists. Um, my, my grandmother was quite an explorer. She, she traveled around the world between the first and second world war and, and uh, was the first woman to uh, play polo in Iran. And she got, um, and probably the last, and she got uh, arrested for photographing military installations in South Korea accidentally. Wow. Um, so she was quite an adventure, but, and similarly, I, we, she was incredibly naive, like reading the letters she wrote back to her father, like, oh, my God, because you travel with just letters of introduction to these places. So she would just show up. You know, there's no emailing ahead or even calling ahead, say, my child's coming. Can you take care of her? She would literally just show up with her, you know, 20 suitcases or trunks in those days and a letter of introduction and would, you know, trust that she was going to be taken in somewhere to stay. Wow. Um, and so it was quite re- quite remarkable. And you go, my God, how did you cope? And And my path has been quite similar. It's like, I look back and go, oh, my, what were you thinking? But it was, it was wonderfully the naivety is what got me into all these wonderful places and wonderful mistakes. But I, um, and it was after my, after my mother died, um, and that was a very tumultuous experience, sort of midwifing her out. And, uh, and it was, yeah, it was pretty heartbreaking. Mm. I sort of, I had to sort of rediscover because, you know, as we discussed this before, you know, it was like, that was my, I felt like that was my purpose in life was to take care of her and to look after her and keep her alive. And at the grand old age of 23, my purpose had been completely destroyed because she died. Mm. And after that, it was, that was sort of a big awakening for me. It was like, well, are you going to live? You know, because it felt like um, that I, a part of me had died because we were so deeply enmeshed and it was, it was mm. quite a toxic relationship with a great deal of love as well, obviously. But um so then I had to rediscover like who I was apart from the mother. Mm. And, you know, when I look at going into the Amazon, it was almost like going back into the womb and then being, you know, reborn anew. but I had to get to the point where I could get to the, to the Amazon. And, um, you know, I knew deep down and also I'd, I'd had a path with my own addictions and I was in 12 step recovery. So I knew from my experience in 12 step recovery that, that my greatest joy and I felt calmest and best when I was being of service. You know, it's part of the 12 steps that you are of service and you offer your hand to help people. And I knew that therefore um, service was what I wanted to do and be in life. Mm. And I knew that, and I also always had a calling. So it's a very long answer to that question. But when I was, um, when I was 12, <laughs> when I was 12 in geography class, I had this interesting teacher called Mrs. Hensley, who was always finding me troublesome, but um, she, uh, she did a class on the Amazon and I just remember, you know, we learned about deforestation, all the things that we learn at school. And, and I was just horrified by, I, I was like, but how can we do that to this place and oil development, all those sort of things. And, and from that moment, I always had a fascination with the Amazon, but I, it was literally just that it was a, 
a fascination, a calling in the back of my head. And I, I ended up um, many years later splitting up with my fiance and uh, it wasn't for this reason, but uh, he did say to me once I got engaged now, you know, because everybody knew about my yearning to go to the Amazon because now we're not going to the Amazon because I'm not going anywhere without air conditioning and Wi-Fi. And that was like, no. Um, mm. So when I split up with him, I was like, okay, now, you know, it's now or never, like mm. go to the Amazon. And, you know, like if not now, when? Because right. it was always, and, you know, my life was navigated and run upon fear, which is, again, a typical thing about adults and alcoholics. And, you know, one day I was going to do this, one day I was going to do that. And then it was like, okay, you know, universe, nature, use me. Like I'm here, please use me. And I went back to England and had this, you know, was working in a sort of, uh, you know, a usefulish job in a, in a charity, half profit, half not profit. But I had a real sort of road to Damascus moment, um, bicycling to into the city of London and, you know, just try, trying with all the tools that I'd learnt, you know, in the sort of spiritual self-development world to try and be joyful. But I was just, I can't do this anymore. You know, that's mm. that feeling of surrender to, uh, I just can't keep fighting anymore. I can't mm. keep trying to on a happy face. And, and then my bike chain broke and I tried to fix it and I got oil over my hands. I got it on my suit and I got it, like it was pouring with rain. And I'm like, okay, that, and I was just, so I looked up into that sky in the pouring rain and I was like, you know, use me. You know, if, if you're there, if there's something there, I've been praying to you for a thousand years. I don't know if you're there. Like, please use me. I want to be of service. I want to be of use, please. And then mm. like everyone, all your listeners know, and you know, like when we, when we allow that moment to happen, then the divine comes in and, mm. you know, whatever you want to call it, we just have to, open enough for that path to, uh, to unfold and that was when literally within you know 24 hours someone invited me to the amazon and That's then crazy. i was like oh my god and it was just it was just that one step in front of the other feeling the fear and then like do it feeling mm. the fear do it and then the, and i had no idea how the outcome was going to be i just was surrendered and open and that period was so mystical and magical it was literally like i was the universe was doing for me what I could not do for myself. You know, mm. I just did the next right step. Can I do this step? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then I ended up, you know, stepping off a plane into the middle of the Amazon forest and feeling utterly, it was so, it was so alien in every way, the scent, the feel, like everything was alien. And yet I had that sense of homecoming. I had that feeling of, okay, mm. you know, this, this is where I'm meant to be. And I hadn't had that for such a long time. That's a very long answer, Chris. Well, so but, you, but you did it. You, you took us from the beginning, from very early on, yeah. and then took us right into the Amazon. And there you are. So I'm really curious just because obviously, maybe not obviously, my astrological line, my astrological mind tends to think in terms of like cycles and moments and transits and things like that. So I've sort of been trained into thinking in those terms. So I'm just curious really out of my own um and my own curiosity how old were you in this moment where you're riding a bicycle and you can no longer do it and all of the kind of um elements are against you and the chain breaks and you look up to the sky what kind of age approximately are you there 32 32 okay yeah right yeah just have to sort of place that because we got this moment when you're 23 um mm -hmm. when your mother passes and and by the sounds of things, I mean, 
these are the sorts of conversations that we could have, um, you know, 10 more hours just on that, that, that your childhood and alcoholism mm -hmm. and control and fear and mental health, mental illness, and all of the things that sort of go into that. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. it's just fascinating to hear, I guess, threads of your story where there's the, there's the part of mental health and there's the part of alcoholism, there's yourself in recovery. And then this other thread of this teacher. And I wonder if the audience also can, can go back to a moment in their schooling or whatever it is, you know, you've got all these kind of almost countless days of school. If you were there for 12 years or however long you were there, um, all those countless hours and countless classes. And then there's just often this one class or this one thing or this one topic. I remember for me in grade 12, so that's the final year in Australia, we, um, we learn about the Fisher King, the 1990 movie. I, I connected so deeply with this that my C grades all the way through, like my really average student suddenly wrote like this amazing essay and I got top of the class and, and remained up at the top, near the top of the class of English class in the final year after being really kind of like um, blasé before that because, and then now thinking about it, like that whole movie deals with myth and mental illness and like ultimately this redemption that has to go on um, this journey that has to go on the imagery that was in it, Terry Gillian, you know, from Monty Python fame, just creating this world and this, and, um, and in the end that, that being like a real nod from the universe of like, do something like this, right. Which I wouldn't find anything like that for another decade or so, for, you know, but then eventually you're like, oh, wow, it is that <clears throat> almost like the, the idea of teleology or a telos that is that is pulling you forward. So we can imagine that in some ways all of the um, all of the ingredients of your path and it was all sort of there in seed form. All these different events that happened and um, and so it's it's a beautiful sort of thing to reflect on as you're telling it and to feel your story and the way that because I think only through people's stories can we actually hear it. It's really hard to describe, right? You can say mm -hmm. that something's pulling you forward. You can say that there's guidance. You can say that, you know, your, your sort of little, ha little self had to make choices that were bigger than it knew what it was choosing. And you can say those kinds of things, but to actually put it in the context of a story and your own storyline, mm -hmm. I, for me, really helps to understand, like, how does this place work? Right? How, what is the human experience and how does all of this mm -hmm. work? So I'm just really appreciating. I know it's a tiny nutshell that we put a whole lot of information in there, but I just want to appreciate that I get those kind of threads. Mm -mm. And, you know, now that we have arrived in the Amazon, mm -hmm. what did you find there? What did, what, because it's obviously changed your life in many to ways. To totally. I mean, that, that was really interesting, everything you said as well. What I was thinking when you were talking is that, you know, there was, you know, and again, I think you and your listeners, it's like, well, maybe identify with this. Like, uh, there was so many years that I was questing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I nearly gave up hope so many times. And then, but when you tell the story backwards, you go, it was always there. Right. So that, and I think that's a wonderful thing that comes with age and maturity and experience is that we've got more experience of when trusting that the story does appear or the next yeah. story, but the next step does appear, you know, right. when we're, when we're young, it's like, but is it going to? But, you know, if I just trust and I just surrender, will it turn out okay? And then 
with more experience, you go, yep, there was that time, that time. So then the telling of the story, you know, yeah. allows for me to take the fear away. And then, of course, then I'm, you're more open to that that quiet voice. To right, right, exactly. As well, when you're not like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? You can't right, because one of, the, <laughs> one of the sort of paradoxes of it all is if you're thinking in your day-to-day life, like, oh, this is all this purpose and everything, and then you're sort of putting all this extra pressure and it can't just kind of naturally unfold. And we, and that's actually one of the hardest things in, in talking about this because I do believe we all have that kind of yellow brick road, right? We all have a golden mm. path that we can walk and, and we need to be able to know when we're off path and on path. Um, mm. But it's very difficult to speak of it's only looking back when we can condense it in our memory and we can see points and put them together kind of like a constellation where it's like that star that Mm. star that star now i see that picture but when we're living it there's like day after day of like oh man i don't know what i'm doing and all the confusion and all of the like because i'm sure you know when you were when you were there with your mom and she's not well and there's all of this sort of stuff in there there's no sense of like oh and this is going to lead me this moment here is going to lead me to all of this magic and opening. It's like it's, you wouldn't have that in the moment, right? No, no, exactly. It was just like, you know, but it was weird in those tricky moments. I, that's when I would daydream, though, of, ah. you know, the adventures and, the, mm. you know, the Amazon later. So, but I never thought that I had to, you know, I never thought in that moment, you know, we never do. I've got to go through this in the best way I can in yeah. order to, gain the knowledge that will allow me to you know the the prize to allow me to open up through the next door and to mm. and so you know i thought just going to the amazon was the thing i mean i went there with i went there with the intention i mean it was interesting actually because of my tricky childhood i was very much like i'm not going to have children i you know it's I'll, I'll screw them up i can't do that and I became very interested, though, in sort of childbearing practices and um, what was healthy. Like, how do you support the growth of a healthy human? Mm. And I was doing that in order to understand my own childhood initially. Um, and that led me down the path. That, you know, I studied anthropology at university. I studied initiation, which was in particular, because it was like, how, how, do, we, how do we support the, the, you know, the making of a, of a functional, healthy human? Mm. And that functional, healthy human, therefore, being someone who give a, give a damn about the earth. You know, it's sort of part of that. And and so very much my, I was like, I want to be of service to the earth, but I, I very much knew in my own experience, like I had to, and I think that's a, sort of the wounded warrior thing. You know, you, you have to do your own, for me, I had to do my own healing first in order to then be useful. Otherwise I'm just running around being a codependent, trying to save the trees, you know, and, <laughs> and instead of just being codependent to one human, I could be codependent to the whole Amazon. <laughs> and so I had to like, and obviously that's a work in progress, but mm. you know, this is where the healing has got to happen. And then I can be a, a better service. And so, you know, I read this book, which uh, you may have heard of, or listeners may have heard of, it's an old book. Um, Jean Lidolf, I think her name is, uh, wrote called The Continuum Concept. And it was this uh, American girl who went on a, left university, went on a mission to Italy to sort of overheard some Italian guys talking about diamond adventure in the Amazon. And she jumped on, she wanted an adventure. And um, she basically and this was like in the 70s when every childbearing book was written by men. And she just, for her own experience, how, how tough that journey was for her, seeing the way the Italians reacted to adversity was quite a lot. And then seeing how the indigenous guides reacted to adversity, because they were all having the same experience, mm. you know, like boats getting smashed against rapids and trying to get through dangerous territories and biting insects, you know, the whole thing. 
And she was fascinated with the resilience, the emotional resilience of the indigenous people and how they would, you know, they would get smashed into a rock and they would have, have an emotion, but drop it and move on. Mm. And so she went back to the US, got funding and went back to that tribe to see like, what is it that creates such sort of, I guess, you know, elasticity emotionally and, um, and lack of trauma in these sort of situations. And she decided it was the child rearing practices, which was so different from her own mm. and that sort of archetype of the way of doing it in the 70s. Um, and so she wrote this book called The Continuum Content, which was about Amazonian style child rearing. So I was really interested in that too. I, I wanted to go and see how they did it and learn, um, you know, learn firsthand. But I also very much felt I didn't know. Like I knew as a Westerner, I had the best education possible. I knew that I knew nothing, you know, mm. in, in many respects. And I knew that my best thinking and the best education I could personally get didn't lead to fulfillment and happiness. And, you know, and so I wanted to go there and just, you know, with an open mind, just go and live, work, do whatever they needed me to do. They wanted an English teacher. I'd never taught before in my life. I'd never, couldn't speak Spanish. I'm like, whatever you need. I'll do it. I just want to be around you guys and mm. see how you live and learn from you. And then my hope was that I would come up with an idea of, oh, this is how I can use what I, what I have, my connections, my whatever's going on in the Western world to support the Amazon. So I want to learn how, what they need and how I can support them. And I mean, that meant that I stayed there for a lot longer than I had, than I planned. And I, cause I had a lot to unlearn, mm. you know, they, they, and it was just remarkable. I mean, the way that, you know, there is no I in team in tribal culture. You know, we we naturally in the West are trained to think me first, you know, and then I'm going to be helpful. The, the If you grow up in a tight tribe, you don't, it's, it's strange to think of yourself. You know, you think about how your behavior, how everything will impact the whole tribe, because it does impact the whole tribe. And it can, you know, it can be the survival, you know, of the tribe to think tribally. And so, being around that was just incredible in the way that people work together naturally and there's sort of this reciprocity. Um, and, you know, there's not like, everyone's incredibly capable. And this the particular tribe that I was with was called the Atua. So this might be specific to them, but a lot of the Amazonian tribes that I've since lived with, it's the same thing. Like you, you all have to take responsibility for certain things, but there's always that feeling again, if someone's got your back, mm. you know, there's that you're always going to be okay. And, so I, I spent um, the first time I was there, I was there. I just went for a two week trip and then I volunteered to go and, um, and live there for five months. And it was, it was challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was challenging. It was like so far out of my comfort zone. I mean, I was 110 miles from the nearest road. Uh, there was no Wi-Fi dishes. There was like, you go in and you come out six weeks later. And, you know, if you wanted to get a message out, then you have to, you know, walk canoe to a runway to like a dirt strip in the jungle, wait, find out on the radio at 4 a.m. because they turn the radios on between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. And oh, there's a plane coming to Chirat. Okay, to Chirat's the next door community. That's a, a four hour walk. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to leave a note. And then like, <laughs> when that la- plane lands, someone will put the note in the plane and I'll fly it out. And I could say, you know, please call this number and tell them I need some more vitamins or whatever do you know what i mean wow. um, yeah chocolate please was my normal, <laughs> my normal one. 
you know, you have to get hard, hard shell chocolates because otherwise a dark chocolate because the cockroaches don't like chocolate. Oh, okay. Yeah. There'll be That's a good one to know. Right. You know, so literally it was like, that was the, that was the level of connection I had with the outside world. So I was so removed and Mm. I was so different than, Mm. you know, I'd be teaching in the school and they'd be talking about, you know, beauty is uh, black eyes and black hair. Like everyone has black eyes and black hair. And I was like this weird, big, you know, big, pale faced, pale eyed, odd creature. And, uh, you know, the babies did cry when they were being saw me. And um, uh, because, you know, just seeing I go smiling towards him and he's like weird pale eyes and that right. was not acceptable to them at all. I'm like, please let me cuddle you, good little baby. And then the kids would cry because there was mythologies about, um, about, so white people were actually, um, and this could have come, I tried to dig into it. It could have come from, you know, there's tales that the Vikings went up the Amazon. So there were tales of blonde haired, blue eyed people that came up in boats and ate children. And so these sort of mythological sort of white creatures. And so it was funny because you could see the children sort of liking me a bit, but then she's going to eat me. And, Mm. you know, and then when they felt more comfortable, they'd, they'd lift up the back of my hair and try and check the back of my neck because these monsters had a second mouth hidden in the back wow, of Wow, okay. And that's what they ate the children for. So I was like, why are these kids like sort of trying to like look at my, and then they're like, she doesn't have a second mouth. <laughs> Thank, Thank God. goodness. Oh my God. Fury. But it was so funny. I literally, they'd say quite openly, like the mothers would go, well, do you, you know, do you feel comfortable with Zoe now? And they go, yes, I like her, but I, I hope she doesn't eat me. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to eat you unless you don't do your homework. But, you know, it was sort of, there was, it was so alien and so mm. removed, but slowly, slowly, you know, working alongside the women in the chakras, the manioc gardens, um, just being at the time of uh, Wayusa, which is this beautiful daily ritual between f- 4 and 5 a.m. For the, for the young folks, but the elders will do it between 3 and 4 a.m. And it's a drinking of a, a beautiful plant called Wayusa, uh, which is a caffeine-producing holly plant. So it's a little bit like yerba mate, mm. and they drink that every morning, and it's super high in antioxidants and it also creates lucid dreaming if you drink it every day um but it, it's high in caffeine but it also calms you and focuses you hmm. i know amazing i mean they have generally the the elders will know and use between 500 and 1000 different plants wow. in the forest really they'll know the names for them and and the uses of them wow i mean it's it's quite remarkable yeah, incredible. And you were, so you would get up at, at three or four in the morning and, and partake in this? Every morning, yeah. And it's, so you, that's, yeah. So it's part of like the relaxation, but also uh, channeling or, or uh, focusing the mind. And then you just, what what happens next? Do you go into like a meditative, meditative state or? Well, it's just really beautiful because, you know, it's that, that liminal space mm. between night and day. And it's like, that's when the mosquitoes are not, it's less mosquitoes. It's it's a lovely temperature, mm. not too cold, not too hot. And, you know, you'd come and sit around the fire and the family. It's a quiet sort of time around the fire. Everyone sort of snuggles in around the fire and there'll be this huge saucepan on the fire full of leaves bubbling away. And then you have these beautiful sort of long gourds that sort of sit perfectly in the palm of your hand. They're sort of these long. And you just sort of people just sit and blow sort of ripples across the water because mm. it's quite hot. And then it's this lovely sort of smoky scent of the tea. And then you slowly sip that and you, you drink, you know, six or seven, you drink a lot of it. And, 
and then when you feel ready, someone will, well, there's, there's a bit that's not so lovely, people go, too, but it's also an emetic tea, which means it makes you throw up. So you have to drink a lot of it in quick succession. So you can just drink a cup full, but if you drink, if you want to do the full clearing that they do, so they basically, they clear the body. They have none of the digestive issues that we have, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And But when you, they call it throwing out, when you throw it out, it's a strange feeling because it's not like you feel nauseous anyway. It just... <laughs> sort of feels like you need to pee out of your mouth it's a strange thing oh really so it's more just like liquid coming through it's just so it's just pure liquid there's nothing ever in it unless there's a a problem but it's literally just go oh and then the liquid comes out and that is basically so it's a cleansing of the body and then at that point you sit down by the fire you wash your mouth out you wash your hands you sit down and then you speak about your dreams Mm. so you're clearing so you start the day by the time the sun rises you clear the body you you clear the mind and talking about your dreams so Every single morning, those that can remember their dreams will speak about their dreams around the fire, and then the oldest person in the household will analyze that dreams. And normally, if you dream about animals, then it's you know reflective of the human world. And if you dream about humans, it's reflective of the animal animal mm. world. And of course, in that ecosystem, a lot of it is around hunting, fishing, mm. uh, relationships, you know, the, the important things to them. So it's quite funny when you know you have a Western type of dream. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean it's a good day to go hunting peccaries? I'm not sure. So it's sort of, you know, and they have, you know, if if a man, which is quite interesting, if a man dreams about sexual relations with a lady, that is not a good dream. It is a bad dream. That means he may be bitten by a snake. And so he must stay at home and make a basket. <laughs> and I was like, the guys in my world would have those dreams a lot. And they're like, strange. Wow. We don't have them very often. And so, you know, it's like, because <laughs> they have lots of wives. Um, so, you know, it's, so these dreams, they can be prophetic. They can be warning dreams. Um, they can, there's so many different, you know, types. And so you need the elders who have that understanding can analyze them. And then, you know, even down to, you know, that is a good path to go hunting on today, you know, and then, you know, the Mm. lady of the house is choosing that she wants to go, uh, fishing with babasco. Babasco is another plant, which is incredible. Um, that you, it's, it's, time consuming so you pick all the leaves and you pound it for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and then you fill up a basket with a sort of the mush of babasco and you'll go into a stream and you'll put sort of a dam or sort of barrier across downstream and then you'll put the basket with all the leaves in and you'll sort of shake it around take it around and the babasco will go out into the water and it sucks the oxygen from the water while it's there so all the fish from down the bottom you want a shallow stream will come to the surface and then you walk down and you can see who's who and then you pick out the ones that you want put them in your basket and then when the babasco leaves the water the oxygen comes back and then they can breathe again and they carry wow amazing. i mean it's just amazing yeah. and they when when you ask them about the uses of these plants the plants tell them mm. and it's like well how do the plants come? a lot of the time obviously the very well-known ayahuasca um, or natem in the actual language, each indigenous group in the Amazon has a different name. And ayahuasca is a Quechua term, but it's the most well-known one. You know, ayahuasca often tells them what plants to use for what. So in the actual community, if you're very sick, you will drink natem, ayahuasca, and so will the shaman. And together you will journey mm. and the shaman will see very clearly which plants and how to prepare the concoction will heal you. Hmm. And so if it's a particularly difficult um healing and i've seen you know shamans do this many times they'll be they'll be doing 
uh, so both of you are on the ayahuasca and I, and I damaged my back very badly once. And so I had an experience of this and they made also, they made like a nappy for me, sort of to drag it onto my spine of Datura, which is Floropondia, which is a very powerful hallucinogen. And, uh, you know, they, they told me that I, then they did sort of deep body work on me as well, but like energetic. Mm. And I had to then go to sleep and then the spirit of the forest, the spirit of the river, would come out and would heal my back. I mean, my back did get a little bit better. It didn't get fully healed. Um, but it is, it is remarkable what, you know, what the plants tell them. And they also contact them through dietas. So you do, um, you become friends with a plant. Mm. So you say, Chirikaspi, you know, I want to connect with you and I'm going to not eat, you don't eat any meats. You're only allowed to eat a certain type of, a specific type of fish that is, connected with Chirikaspi, who's this amazing plant. And then you will literally drink this plant for maybe 40 days. And so the plant spirits will come to you in the dreams and then you will have that connection for the rest of your life with Chirikaspi and Chirikaspi will teach you how to use her mm. to heal. It's, it's pretty good, Chris. It's beautiful. I mean, um, so, yeah, it's really bringing to mind because I think sometimes when we hear stories like that, it's like, yeah, that that's... um that's the hunter-gatherers, this is, this is this tribal way of living and it's something that we've lost and it comes from places like the Amazon and then that's, but then that's that in a way. And, and what's been fascinating for me in my sort of research over the last couple of years and maybe 20 years of, of sort of broader stuff with mythology is, um, is that sense of Chiron who I'm, who I talked about last week on the podcast and, and particularly his student Asclepius who was this dream healer. So Chiron, who would walk through the forest and uh, make these tinctures and create, clearly create connection with the plants of the forest. And then, but there was something missing in, in what, in what Chiron was able to create with, as a healer, something was missing. And so his student Asclepius was sort of found the student Asclepius like learnt everything that Chiron had to offer him and, and still felt that something was missing. And that thing was the psyche, the soul. Um, mm. And so he um, it kind of, and this is all sort of demigods, right? It's like, it's all very in between worlds, these stories. It's, it, it's kind of like, are we talking history here or mythology or cosmology? It's so hard to really know because we're in that dreaming. Like once we get back to about 10,000 years of human history, we're mostly in the dreaming anyway, in the same way as it's in, in a human life. Once we get back to say when I'm five, four, three in that kind of range, or definitely in the first year of my life i'm in the dreaming i don't really know what happened but i might be able to dream into it so then asclepius was like the thing that's missing is this and so these temples were made according to asclepius's dream healing so you go through this ritual and this process and go to sleep in, in one of these little rooms in the basement of the temple called the abiton and in there there would be that that asclepius would either enter your dream or one of his animals which is the dog and the snake amongst a few others, would either enter your dream and perform the healing rites there or show you what you needed to do in order to heal yourself. And it's fascinating to go like all the way from ancient Greece there and whatever they were picking up on, you go all the way into this completely other area of the world and a still intact um, tribe is still, is, is actually 
doing this in a way, you know, like it's familiar in the sense that like, I recognize this from, from Greek mythology. I recognize this from that cosmology. And it's also familiar in the sense that my bones feel it. And when you're telling it, my, my soul feels it and, and, and recognizes that something has been missed and lost. Um, some decisions have been made by our ancestors along the Western tradition to say like, oh, we can't afford to, it's almost like, we can't afford to take that much chance when it comes to our health and healing. We need to control it, get it down to its molecules and, uh, you know, and just do it this way. So very kind of like, we need to extract it out of the forest. We can't leave it in the forest because like, which is a breakdown of our relationship between ourselves and the plants, right? And therefore ourselves and the animals and therefore ourselves and ultimately the earth. And we are left with just this isolated weird creature maybe this maybe this being that they have in their mythologies of the one who will eat the children maybe there's a um maybe that's not true in the literal but maybe that is true in the Mm -hmm. mythical right like it is it it is right for them to be scared um Mm -hmm. it is right for them to feel some kind of apprehension towards you and that that has been learnt right and i also just love the image of them looking for the mouth at the back of your neck that's like really cute I know, just like, oh, man. But, I mean, that's the thing, you know, that, that idea as well of, like, of a soul fracturing. Yeah. You know, when you're taking just that molecule, you're taking the soul out of it. You're taking the the mystery and the magic out of the medicine. And, I, right. you know, that's sort of that shamanic idea of, of uh, transmutation and of, hmm. um, you know, of, and of, of bringing back those, those fractured pieces. And, you know, that's so much their healing. It's like, Okay, there's that's happened, but why has that happened, and mm. what pieces? And they they take in the full picture of, you know, any we know this, you know, any trauma, anything that's you know, we'd say PTSD now, but that's actually soul fracturing. It's right, and you know, so how do we do that healing? And you know, you do that in your work. It's not just mm. the physical; it's the mental, it's the spiritual, it's the emotional. It's those all four pieces. And I think, you know, definitely in my experience, when I'm healing. You know, I had I had so many lessons when I, my back fell to pieces, and I mm. and I knew from the time that I'd been in the Amazon, okay, this needs to be healed, in you know, mind, body, spirit, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you know, physically, all these, you know, it couldn't just be, oh, I'll go in there and do surgery, right? Because that wasn't taking the the opportunity for the for the deep deep healing. It wasn't looking back even, you know, and when I went into I did went and did healing all over the place. There was interesting different traditions, but you know into the Amazon and they were looking back at, you know, what's happened in your lineage? How do we, Mm. you know, yes, you heal this, but it's like, and maybe your particular soul has said, I'm, I'm this lifetime, I'm going to take on, you know, my father, my grandfather, my great grandmother's, you know, issues and try, and then how do we heal those? And they definitely do that through the visions, through the the plant medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And what something else is really fascinating is that um an anthropologist michael harner who was um uh he wrote a book the way the way of the shaman he worked with the the atra and the schwa that i work with too the hivero language group um i don't know when back in the 70s i think but he had experience back then and he came back to the states and he set up the i think it's the institute for shamanic studies and what he did is he raised money to bring together shaman from all over the world so you know, shaman is a Siberian term um, and it's now just used everywhere sort of for 
psychologist, medicine man, mm. medicine woman, priestess, <laughs> you know, mm. in every different culture he's called shaman. But he brought this this group together where he would, you know, fly them all together from all over the world to have this these conferences once a year. And what he found was fascinating is that so many of them had that the same understandings and the same ways of accessing the divine or accessing knowledge. And, you know, it was just, it was just remarkable that they, uh, you know, be from, you know, Mongolia and the Amazon and then, you know, Papua New Guinea, Australian Aboriginal people, they all like, they all used this, they could all travel through the earth in a particular mm. way, the plants will communicate them in a particular way. And there were so many similarities, even though, and some of them even knew of each other mm-hmm. from, wow. the, from the spiritual plane. And from actually, their, from their journey. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And actually a dear friend of mine, Minari, who's a Sapra Shaman, his, his, you know, his tribe is going extinct. There's three remaining speakers of the Sapra language. His mm. mother is one of them. The others speak uh, Quechua, but he, his understanding is that, you know, that we are, his father was a big shaman. He's died, but he's still, the spirit of his father still works very strongly with his mother and with himself when he's in ceremony. And Minari became, he's a shaman, but he also became a sort of a leader and visionary for his people and traveled all over the world speaking on behalf of the Amazon and indigenous peoples. And he, the first time he ever went to South Africa, his father said, hmm, South Africa. He said, and this man has never left the Amazon, never even been out to a frontier town. And he said, oh, you know, there's Sahinos the size of, um, you know, of, so there's basically there's white-lipped peccaries the size of this other type of peccary that they which is a uh, a wild boar in the Amazon, and he goes and you'll see them. They did it, and he describes these things. And then Minari's out in South Africa, and they do the conference, and he does this talk about the Amazon, and they take them out on this little safari, and he sees these creatures, warthogs, that were exactly as his father had described. Totally, he's like literally like you know they got the tail of this one, they got da, 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 da. <laughs> and he's seen them, you know, in his wow. visions all the way across the world. And, and Minari said he knew being raised by his father that, that all this wisdom was correct. Yeah. But it was signs like that that really showed him and, you know, birds that he'd seen in his visions and dreams. Mm. He had another thing with, a, with a, a, a European dove that he'd seen in his own visions and dreams. And when he got to Europe, he saw the bird and he was just like, okay, thank you. Mm. You know, just yummy. Thanks for listening to On the Soul's Terms. Find us online at onthesoulsterms.com and on Instagram at onthesoulsterms. This podcast is produced in Vancouver, British Columbia, which we would like to acknowledge is on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, Slowitooth, Squamish, and Musqueam. Tune in next time for more of the wisdom of stories, approaching what the ancients knew on the soul's terms.